Welcome to the Disruptive Entrepreneur Podcast. What does the word disruptive mean to you? It means going beyond the ordinary, going beyond the status quo. Not thinking in the conventional way, not just sort of following the herd. Disruptive means shaking things up, you know? Disruptive entrepreneur is somebody who sees the problem and embraces the problem with a new way. Shake up and awakening. Quality will take care of itself and you'll go from being disruptive but also profitable. When you use your reservoir of talent, when you love what you do, then you disrupt. Mix it up, change it up and dominate. And now, your host, eight times best-selling author and double world record holder, Rob Moore. Hi, it's Rob and welcome to the Disruptive Entrepreneur Podcast. Now, the man you are about to hear a very deep dive interview with uh, is none other than the infamous Barry Hearn. Now, Barry is probably known by most of the people in the world, but if you don't know him, he's a very famous, maybe an infamous a sporting promoter. He completely revolutionised snooker, completely revolutionised darts. He is a boxing promoter. Um, his son, Eddie, who's now taken over the empire, is like one of the biggest guys in the world at the moment, um, who's promoting people like Anthony Joshua in the UK and the US. Barry's worth not far off £100 million pounds, uh, and loves money, by the way, and always wanted to be rich and has a lot to say about that in this podcast. So we agreed with the Waldorf Hotel in um, London uh, that we could do an interview with him there. We got it all cleared by their team. We got there uh, and then they wouldn't let us record. And it was, it was a bit messy. Um, I had my agent on the phone kicking off with their security. Barry's there sipping his tea in the corner waiting patiently uh, and they wouldn't budge despite the fact that we had proof from them that we could record um, sort of in the bar area. In the end, they wouldn't let us record the video. So we, we rucked and hustled a bit and managed to get them to persuade us to record just the audio. Um, so what you are about to hear now is probably, what, an hour and 10 minute interview with Barry Hearn, but also the befores and the afters. So you hear me ranting a bit on the microphone and be a bit annoyed um, that we couldn't get the video interview. You hear quite a lot of um, Barry and I chatting beforehand and Barry and I chatting afterwards. Uh, you'll hear that I asked Barry, is there anything you want editing out? Do or don't want to talk about it? He's like, no, anything and everything. So I feel like we have permission to publish all of the audio. Um, so yeah, you get everything. Harry reckons it's one of the best interviews we've had. Uh, I would say that Pound for pound, minute for minute, there's more information in this podcast than any other podcast we've done. So if you're watching this live video, you'll need to subscribe to The Disruptive Entrepreneur. It'll be coming very soon. And if you're listening to the podcast right now, uh, no more long intros from me. Welcome to the interview with Barry Hearn. And remember, if you don't risk anything, you risk everything. Are we all good? All right, so we're in the hotel lobby and um, we've been refused filming at the moment. Yeah, so guys, I don't know, maybe it's just deniability but if I can just ask to stick to an audio thing yeah. because no one's got anything in black and white you know regarding the actual filming so take a few pictures and do your yeah. audio thing I mean he's sort of sat in the corner in that restaurant should we stay there it's quite and tucked away Godfrey's. through there yeah. to the right in the corner okay. you don't expect Anthony Joshua to turn up do you would you give us video then if he did no. you want to don't you you want to help me out here <laughs> you do Barry um, yeah, here. That's what they've said. And um, they only want us to do audio. Um, but I mean, most of what we do is audio based anyway. Okay, so this is Harry, who's the, um, the AV guy. I've got to get my stuff. Oh, 
man, stressing, stressing. Can you believe it? No confirmation from the hotel about the video. Just have to do the audio thing on your feet. I was crapping myself. Lovely piano. No, they're a little bit, they're a little bit picky. Yeah. Which is stupid, really, because it's live from the Waldorf. I mean, for fuck's sake, have they never heard about marketing or something? Hey, ho, it is what it is, mate. I mean, yeah. Right, sure. let me just get this clipped on for you, if that's okay. all right. Yeah. I'm just concerned about that piano noise. You're going to, I mean... Can I get I you a drink, Barry? No, I'm fine. I just think it's, uh, well, it's a little bit off the left field, isn't it? You know, we've got music in the background, you know. I like it. Well, it's early different, you know. This is the old-fashioned part of it. And the next thing these guys say, we need more business. And you say, yeah. well, fucking market yourself. Yeah. 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 Crazy. Yeah. Are you keeping all right? Yeah, I'm good, thanks. Busy? Yeah, yeah, very busy. Busy, but not too busy, but busy. Oh, well, that's okay. I sort of oscillate between bored, overwhelmed, bored, overwhelmed, bored, overwhelmed. I oscillate between overworked, overworked, overworked. <laughs> excited, excited, excited. Yeah. Every, every day is so good. So I have got a meeting here at three o'clock, so 50 minutes is more than enough. Yeah, we'll be fine. Um, we'll, we'll get what we get, obviously. So. Um, so before we start, is there anything in particular you... No. No, you're all good with whatever. It's just, just fire away. Great, if I don't okay. like it, I won't answer. Of course. And if there's anything that comes out that afterwards you think, get rid of it, we can edit yeah, it yeah, out. Yeah, yeah, I think these things are so much better done au natural. Yeah, completely. That's not naked, by the way. That's just, <laughs> just in case. As, no, yeah. no. I think we definitely get slung out with that. You know. Can you put the code in? Oh, I don't know. Oh, no problem. I've got them on my phone, if not. Uh, so. so, how often do you do these? Um, kind of when I want, really. But, I mean, yeah. we publish two a week. I'll probably do an interview every every two weeks. Yeah. I'd say. Probably two a week. Yeah. Are you getting yeah. Are you getting much pickup from it now? Yeah, yeah. we have about two point three million subscriptions, listeners. Good. So that's pretty good. It's good. Yeah, from just chatting away and yeah. People get bored when they're driving a car. You know, you yeah. turn it on, you think, oh, <laughs> yeah. I might as well listen to this. Now. Yeah. I'm, I'm in a traffic jam. Actually, yeah, you're probably keeping most of the country safe. You know, yeah, sane. maybe. Yeah, yeah. Normally they want to the radio, fight everybody and yeah. they're like, oh, well, that's okay. And actually, yeah. you get to a certain stage. I remember having a flight delayed once at Heathrow. I was so pissed off. <laughs> and it was like an hour, we'll tell you. Two hours, we'll tell you. Three hours, we'll tell you. And after five hours, it was still next hour, we'll tell you. Yeah. I, I think thought, they do that on purpose because if they thought, told you this is never going to take off, you know. But, okay, you can't go, can you? Yeah. So I enrolled in an online poker tournament. And I started playing it, and I was doing okay. And then eventually it came, after about five hours in this poker tournament, it's now nine o'clock at night, I've been there since eight o'clock in the morning. And they came up and said, uh, the flight's cancelled, but we're you know, it's ho overnight hotel, all right. I'm, well I don't need that because I'm not that far away, so I'll just get a car and go home. But I was on the final table, and I actually sat in the lounge for another hour and a half. They were trying to close the lounge, I went, no, no, no. <laughs> I've been here waiting for you. You're now waiting for me. And I won $16,000 and got me plane home. Nice. I won the tournament. <laughs> I thought to myself, I'm back tomorrow. I hope they delay the flight again. I'll have another go. So it's just what challenging. You've got to change these situations yeah. to your advantage. You know? But it was very funny when they came up and said, oh, Mr. Hearn, ever so sorry. You know, we're, we're closing the lounge now. I went, oh, no, you're not. <laughs> no, no. I've sat here for 12 hours. And you're going to see until I've been beaten or win. <laughs> and that's what we did. It was good. Good fun. Okay, well, look, Barry, thank you for doing the 
podcast, really grateful. Pleasure. Have you done a podcast interview before? Several. Huh. There are thousands and thousands of podcasts. There Obviously, are. your one stands head and shoulders yeah, amongst absolutely. everyone else, but then that's what I said to the last podcast. So <laughs> take me for how you yeah, want we'll to cut believe. that bit out. Yeah. <laughs> how do you think snooker changed when you got involved? I think it was, uh, it was a climatic moment for the sport because obviously I'd been involved in snooker since 1974 and the whole history of Davis and the worldwide explosion in China, Japan, South America and, I, and I'd enjoyed every second. I didn't stop laughing and I made plenty of money as well so everyone was happy. But then I suppose it's my fault. I got a bit bored and props floated around, went into boxing, went into other sports and clearly I wasn't the most popular person in snooker by the governing bodies because they wanted to do what I was doing. And eventually I virtually said to them, well go on then, go and do it. And of course they weren't capable of doing it. And then you sort of had this 20 year hiatus of slow decline. And, and surprisingly, because by then my company had sort of grown to a global entity. and Is that Matchroom? Yeah, yeah. Matchroom Sport was getting bigger and bigger. And Suddenly they came back and said, all the players did, said, look, would you come back in? We're going nowhere. We've got five events and the whole thing is just impounding. It wasn't a proper sport. It wasn't a proper job for sportsmen. And I, I looked at it and discussed it with Steve Davis because he's my closest friend. And I felt I owed the sport something because it started me off. And also I like a, I like a challenge anyway. And I thought it was, they were just doing basic things wrong. Like? Like not doing enough events. You know, like letting the players disappear for three months, losing impetus, you know. So I went back in as, but I said I only go back in as an owner, I don't go back in as an employee. And we structured a deal with the players where I guaranteed a certain amount of prize money escalating year on year and said if I don't hit those numbers, you can have it all back. Yeah. But if I do hit those numbers, then I'll create a, a pool of money which will give me some reserve fund in case we have some troubled years. Uh, that reserve fund is currently at £35 million and we haven't had any troubled years. So we've taken the prize money from £3.5 to around 14 and the number of events from 5 to probably nearly 30. And it's, it's a proper business now, you know? Yeah. And how did you get that prize money up and those events up? It's, it's, it's what we specialise. I specialise in logistics and not cocktails, as no. you can hear in the background. <laughs> yeah. That was a cocktail, everybody. And, and it's lunchtime where we're not drinking. Um, my specialty is logistics and, and monetization. Um, some people would criticise me for being only an accountant, and I think they're missing the point that that's how you run a business. Of course. So I have relationships with most broadcasters around the world through my matrim sport hat which was easy to invite them into the world of snooker. And when they got value for money and they saw the ratings and, and, the, and the sport's done very well globally, uh, it was an easy job. And then sponsorship the same. Sponsors know me from what I deliver on other products and they were interested to give snooker a try and it's worked for them. So we've come out of it as a strong business. Great, so before I go on to the next question, I just want to let you know because I think you should compliment people when you can. Um, you are the person that the most people have said to me needs to be on this podcast. And actually, um, whilst I'm not as close with Steve Davis as you, I, he's been on my podcast and I've spent yeah. a fair bit of time with him. Yeah, he's he's a very, very interesting man and very intelligent man, so you can listen to Steve all day. I started off with Steve, first five years, I think I taught him everything I could talk. And for the last 35 years, he's taught me more. <laughs> so it's, a fair, it's been a very fair swap. That's great. Uh, so going back a bit, beyond and before 
your business world. I understand you were a bit of a salesperson and a hustler at quite a young age. Yeah, I mean, I always wanted to be rich, funny enough. It's not, I mean, it's a pretty bland statement. But obviously, my dad was a bus driver and died very young. My mother was a house cleaner. And the big houses were at the top of the hill. And I always and thought two, one. one is I wanted one, and two is I thought they've got more money than me, so there must be things they need doing. Yeah. And I've, I've never been the, the smartest kid in the street, but I've always, I've had a work ethic that is un, unmatchable. Even today, I don't know anyone that puts in the hours or the graft, and it's out of love and just having fun. It's not, it's not a toil, because if it was, I wouldn't be doing it. But so from about 12 or 13, I started window cleaning rounds, car washing rounds, gardening rounds, babysitting rounds, and I employed a lot of kids from the school. Took a turn out of each one of them, of course, <laughs> and developed into so like, I always had cash, and you know, for a working class man to have a few quid readies in your pocket is a bit special, you know. It gives you that independence. And slowly but surely, you know, the same attributes were transferred to chartered accountancy and business where if you're relentless, eventually you get there. It might take you longer than a genius gets there much quicker, but it doesn't really matter because I don't, my time is not costed in my head. Sure. And what is important is to be focused with a work ethic that can't be denied. and you will eventually get there. And it's a message that I, I try to send out to a lot of kids because they don't have opportunities in lots of areas, and nor did I. But if, you know, without saying, look, I did it, aren't I clever? What I'm saying to them is, put yourself out and you can do it. But don't come bleating to me that you don't have this or you don't have that if you haven't given it 100%. And 100% is 100% at the expense of everybody else. Wives, family, children, friends, if you really want to succeed, you have to be relentless. And you've got plenty of time to be a good dad and a good husband later on. But first, Tell my wife that, yeah. Well, no, but it's, you know what it's like to me? It's like getting on an airline, getting on a, a plane. And what do they say on the safety instruction? If we encounter a loss of air pressure, a mask will drop in front of you. Now, what's the instruction they give you? Put it on yourself first. Because you're absolutely no use to anybody if you're incapacitated. So you put it on yourself before you do your wives and children. And business from, from when you're growing a business, exactly the same. Look after yourself first. It's total selfishness. Total, complete selfishness. Once you get to that stage where the air pressure's leveled out a bit, then you can be great at home. Mm. And, and when you go past that level and your family is secure, then you can be great with the local community. And if you get to be mega, and I'm talking Bill Gates level or, you know, those type of guys, then they, they, they look on the global view and how they can help globally. I mean, I don't think I'm ever going to get to that level, but certainly now, you know, your first reaction is look after yourself, yeah. look after your family, look after your community, and then see where you are. But it's, to my mind, it's not even rocket science, it's just common sense. Yeah. Why do you think a lot of people have issues with someone who wants to be rich and successful and wants to sort themselves out and run their own business? Why do you think a lot of people, whether they're on the left or just critics. Well, See, because like 30 years ago, it was all right to say, I want to be rich and successful. Yeah. It's like it's a problem now. Well, it was a Thatcher thing, wasn't it, really? Yeah. I think she started, uh, you know, we always remember we bought our council house because of Maggie Thatcher. So I can't have a bad word said about her. She gave us something. And uh, that's the same council house that's worth a lot of money to a lot of people now that were bought uh, for nothing, if you mm. like, you know, instead of rent. Yeah. I think there's always a certain amount of envy and jealousy in the world, and that's natural. 
But the, the sad thing is a lot of people look in the mirror and ask themselves a question, why didn't it happen to me, without understanding the reason why it didn't. And why it didn't is because you perhaps weren't focused enough or you didn't make enough sacrifices. And people talk about sacrifice without really understanding what it is, you know. I compare myself to a, a top sportsman, if you like. You don't get to the top in any sport unless you're dedicated, you put in the hours, you make the sacrifices, yeah. you know. And, and actually, because there are barriers everywhere, you, you have to pay the same price in business. Mm. Mm. Something to think about. Well, um, you know, it's not, you know, I look at these boxers, you know, today. Terribly hard sport, you know, physically damaging. Actually, a sport really shouldn't be allowed in today's liberalised society. You know, one man getting paid to beat up another man. Goodness me, I mean, how long, you know, how's that escaped the liberal move and the PC brigade? I don't know. But at the same time, the dedication and the commitment they put in to come out of what is a working class environment, when I consider myself to this day 100% working class, what, what effort they put in to get out of that environment, try and make a life for themselves, it's unbelievable. It's unbelievable. And all I can do is stand back and applaud and say, let's go to another level, as, as my son Eddie has said, Look, let's take these fighters to another level. Yeah. And, and that's what he's doing. But it's only a repayment of the commitment they made to start with. When you were young, was there anything you wanted to be when you grew up? Oh, um, yeah. Because I guess... Yeah. I grew up wanting to be heavyweight champion of the world. Right. I mean, from about seven or eight years old. You know, it's like, how do you go from rags to riches? I mean, today, kids want to be a Premier League footballer. Understandable. It's a lot easier to be a Premier League footballer <laughs> yeah. than a champion boxer. You still need a lot of ability, but there's a lot more money spread around. Yeah. But when I was young, there wasn't that ability. You know, we didn't even have the... Johnny Haynes had not even created the £1,000 a year football at that stage. So, but boxing was historically the sport that took you out of rags and into riches. Unfortunately, I found out I wasn't very good at fighting. So that was a bit of a setback for my career, really. So promotion was probably the next stage, or the best stage that I could be capable of. Uh, and what, you, when you realised you weren't going to make it as a fighter, you were already in the world enough to see that there were other ways to be a businessman? No, no, no. I just saw that I was getting the shit kicked out of me all the yeah. time every time I thought I could fight. So right. it, it wasn't a good idea. It wasn't a no. good career move. And how I, did you go from that into what well, you... Well, I went into everything. I mean, I have a failed sportsman in everything I've tried. Yeah. I've always been gold medal standard in enthusiasm. Unfortunately, <laughs> not even bronze medal in ability. Yeah. So when you talk about... You can't name a sport I haven't done. And I've given 110%, but God just decided that it was not for me. Yeah. You see, this is the interesting fact about people with our DNA, is everybody in this world is different. And it follows, therefore, that everybody is better than everybody else at something. The sad part of that is they very rarely find out what that is. Um, either through their own fault, because they don't dedicate themselves enough, or because they just didn't go down that path. So for me, I've always been a scattergun Gemini. It's like, someone said to me about running. I mean, Forrest Gump is my, describes my style of running because I obey instructions. Normally I obey them, obey them from my wife. You know, <laughs> Normally. In, well, that's probably why I've been married 48 years. I just do what I'm told. Mm. But I decided to keep fit one day and someone said, well, you should run. I said, well, I, I can run. I said, well, off you go. And I ran marathons all around the world, triathlons. Never won any of them, you know. But, but in a way, I, I'm very easy to understand because I'm just focused. 
So I would run three hours on the running machine just looking at a bit of wall. And people say to me, you must have a brain the size of a pea. And I say, correct. But you know what? I didn't stop because I told myself I'm not stopping. So it wasn't the fastest thing in the world. I think I got down to about three hours 20, which weren't bad for a fat, grey-haired bloke, old geezer. But was never going to, you know, it was no cigar, was it? But it says more about the character of the person that they persevere. Yeah. And can you remember a time in your life where you moved into the promotion side and moving into your matron business where you thought, there's something here I can do? Well, I've always been a dreamer, you know, and I've always been a predictor, and sometimes I even get it right. But, I mean, my, my history was in, you know, I had a, a, a series of God-given big breaks of being just lucky. lucky. I mean, well, I mean, I should never have been a chartered accountant. My dad was a bus driver. You couldn't get into chartered accountancy without a university degree or family ties. I didn't exactly have family ties, but somehow or the other, an uncle of mine had a tiling business with three employees in South End, and he spoke to his accountant and said, my nephew wants to be a chartered, and, and he gave me a job, six quid a week, and I became the youngest qualified chartered accountant, I think, or youngest fellow of the Institute. Because again, I just locked myself in a room. You know, my mum, actually, I think my mum locked myself, locked me in a room. <laughs> and it was Monday to Friday and Sunday, but I could go out Saturday. Yeah. So from 18 to 21, I didn't go out. Mm. But I learned every single line of every single book off Pat. So there's no way I was ever going to fail. Yeah. Not to say I was going to be any good, but I knew how to, you know, recite memory. Yeah. And that was just hours and hours and hours of work. But if you want something bad enough, you do it. Mm. And then from there, post-qualified, youngest audit manager at KPMG, got headhunted to head up a fine, you know, an investment company with a brief to expand it and diversify. I, I took them into property, lost a fortune, took them into garment manufacture, lost a fortune, and then I found a, found a chain of snooker halls, bingo. And of course, the moment I bought them, BBC put snooker on TV. Yeah. And suddenly, this business was a huge overnight success, and everyone said to me, you are a genius. How on earth did you see this coming? Well, you know, <laughs> I made up some trite reason, but the truth of it is, it was just a fluke. And then, you know, subsequent to that, the textile business had some bad times. I'm very aggressive and very, you know, I'm, I'm relentless. So there had to be changes made, and one of the changes where I became an owner of a third of the business, and we sold in 82, and suddenly I'm 34 and I've got enough money to retire. But I tried six weeks of cricket, fishing, snooker, what else did I do? Gym, everything for six weeks. I was going mad. I needed some creativity in my head. So I thought, well, I'll form a little company. We'll call it Matrum, and we'll just do a few snooker events around the world and keep me busy, you know, and, and let me have a laugh. Let me have some fun. And that's business started. For years, people have been asking me where I buy my watches. Many of you may know I'm a watch collector. I'm a watch investor. And those as an asset class have done me very well in the last 15 years. I have never shared where I source my watches from or my watch dealer until now. My watch dealer used to be a professional footballer for Manchester United and he formed a watch brand called Broadwalk and he sources the higher end brands like Rolex, Audemars Piguet, Patek Philippe and Richard Mille. I trust him, I've used him for many years and recently we've done a partnership, hence I'm inviting you if you want to start investing in watches and protect your money from the banks and inflation to check out Broadwalk. 
That's B-R-O-A-D-W-A-L-K. And the website is broadwalkgroup.com. The email is sales at broadwalkgroup.com. And please don't share this, but his number is 07496 878153. Obviously, only message him if you're serious about buying and investing in the higher-end watches. People have been asking me for years, and for the first time ever, you can get access to my watch team. Nineteen eighty-two with me and a girl looking after Steve Davis, basically. And today we have offices all around the world. I mean, I'm very proud to say we've got 656 event days this year. We'll transmit 40,000 hours of television, and it and it's still the same fun every day I go in the office, and and that's infectious, you know. So, but so much luck. I mean, I I saw through my textile business, I saw what was happening in America with ESPN. And I was so jealous that, you know, where's all this sport on our television set? It doesn't exist. You know, a couple of things on BBC, a bit of football. And then I saw the satellite and cable revolution beginning with ESPN. I was at ESPN when they were started with college basketball. <coughs> and it probably came two or three years later. I mean, I got quite a cluster going bust in sort of 88, 89 because I was investing in all these events, thinking one day a broadcaster's gonna want them. And, and it was touch and go. So I lost all my money I made in 82, nearly all of it, not all of it. And uh, just in time, along came Sky. Thank God, Mr. <laughs> Murdoch, we love you. I'm sorry you sold out and made billions, but thank you for, thank you for my check for towards your success. Oh, it hasn't come yet. Um, and, you know, the rest is history, because if you do a good job, and you give people value for money, and you put a smile on people's faces, you'll never be out of work. And you talk a lot about luck in that journey. What's your view on luck? Is it that you make it, or you just get your own doses and you've got to take it? No, no. I don't think you make luck at all. That's a God-given thing. That's just fate, if you like. The the secret of luck is makes, when you've had your luck, is making the most of it. So we all get a break. Some people don't recognise when that break is. Someone don't, some people don't see the opportunity. That's just inefficiency. <laughs> but when you do have that bit of luck, then you really got to go for it. And that's the maximisation of the luck. And that's really what I've been good at. So how do you get ahead? You know, you run a big promotion company ultimately. And so you're good at mm. putting events and people marketing out to the world because mm. you've you got to fill rooms you've got to attract sponsors how do you get out there more as a business owner well i think it's all a, it's a people's business so you start off not saying everybody loves me but i don't think i've ever cheated anybody i don't believe i've ever not paid on time what i'm due to pay in the last 27 years We've had, since 1990, we've had 27 years of year-on-year growth, which is quite phenomenal for a business of of this sometimes speculative nature. So you establish good reputation, you operate with integrity, sounds old-fashioned, you give people value for money and you put a smile on people's faces. Now, smile on the faces for the punters, so that when they leave a matchroom event, they say, wow, what a great night. That's what you aim for. You won't get it right every time. I mean, I make dozens of mistakes, but I make thousands of decisions. So, you know, I'm not perfect, although I'm as close as anyone I know. Uh, As you can see, I'm really low in self-esteem, you know. But it is, I find it quite fun to talk about because 
it's so much common sense. You know, if everyone gets value for money, if the TV companies get ratings, if the sponsor gets exposure, if the punters get a great night out, I mean, is that not we're trying? Is that not what we're trying to do anyway? So let's just be better at it and do a better job, and then you build because every time you do an event, every take. Joshua is a great example, if you like, in today's world. You know, you start off, he's got a bit of a reputation, gold medal winner, and then you build the fan base. And then you get to a stage where you're instantly selling out Wembley because there's of the demand. And then you say, well, we're only going to box twice a year, and that demand is, explodes because they don't want to miss out on something special. Premier League dance came to me while I was fishing and to 16, 17 venues around the UK, but just one night. So you establish a scarcity value. By the way, you don't have to come, but if you don't come, you know you miss it. Yeah. Oh, shit, I don't want to miss it. Well, then you better get your tickets early and they sell out straight away. So it's that balance and, and you have to grow events. You have to be prepared to invest in some of my events, Moscone Cup, Pool, Ryder Cup and Pool. I remember watching Steve Davis yeah, play. Yeah, well, that. there we are, but that yeah. lost money for 15 years. Yeah. Now it's a massive global event and it alternates between Vegas and England and Oh, it's incredible, but you have to be patient. If you feel you've got something, I suppose it's like any, it's almost like a relationship, you know, if you feel, look, it's never gonna go completely smooth. There's always gonna be the odd row or two or whatever, but basically you're better with them than without them, if you like. So you make it work. You work to make it work in a relationship and same in the sporting event. You know, it's not perfect, but we can get better and we won't stop trying to get better and eventually we look at ourselves and say we did a good job and that may take a year, it could take 10 years. It depends how relentless you are. If you refuse to accept defeat, it's a good starting point. So you talk about adding value, putting a smile on people's faces. Do you have any specific ways you like to do that? I like to have people go to work the day after a match or event and tell their mates, oh, I had a great time last night, and then the conversation starts. And that's the best long-term philosophy for actually acquiring fans and selling out arenas. You have to establish the reputation. I mean, I think Eddie's got it with boxing where people now are, he's selling out shows basically, not just on the fighters, on he's his reputation. Great, isn't he? He's doing unbelievable. Yeah. He's so much better than his dad, it's not true. <laughs> I mean, he's another world. I think all of us old-time promoters, and there are a few of them, uh, if we tried to operate at the level he operates, we'd run out of oxygen. It's too far above, it's, it's untouchable. He's, him and his team are the best I've ever seen. I mean, they've just made it a new dimension. So, But again, he's creating moments where people will talk about at work, and that sounds simple, but yeah. it's, the, it's the best advert you can ever have. If someone listens to this podcast and says, do you know what? That was a really interesting... I mean, apart from this one, which is obviously going to bore people shitless, but I apologise in advance. But if they listen to this podcast, they say, do you know what? You asked some good questions and, and it was interesting replies. They're much more likely, aren't they? And you've seen it with your numbers grow. They're much more likely to say, when's the next one? And all I want is people to say, when's the next one? And I've got 656 event days. I need a lot of those people saying, when's the next one? Yeah. Great. So I understand from my research that um, you believe you're the happest person in the world. Yeah, um, I know, isn't that sad? <laughs> and you know, that really up, sometimes that's that that sad. Well, because it really upsets people. I think people. more people should be no, like No, no, I, I agree. I, I was talking to Anthony Joshua the other day and he agrees with me 100%. There's something about people, I, and I don't know if it's particularly British, 
that really don't like to think that anyone's happier than they are. So when people say to you, how's things going? They're actually expecting, oh, well, you know, you won't believe it. They're expecting ne negativity. And I've made a point my whole life of saying, don't. Unbelievable. Brilliant. Now look, it could be a disaster out there. You would never know from my face. Yeah. Because that's my problem, not yours. I want to share a little bit of love, a little bit of happiness. And Anthony was saying to me the other day, he's doing the same now. Because yeah. when people say to Anthony Joshua, whose life is brilliant and he's an unbelievable athlete and a, and a terrific human being, mm. they actually, he looks so perfect, they actually want to say, they want him to say, well, you know, Miss Deontay Wilder, you know. <laughs> or, you know, oh, you know, we didn't, you know, didn't get the numbers, I, the money, I, you know. They want that. And, and, and Anthony turns around and goes, my life is just fantastic. Yeah. And in a way, certain people react to that quite negatively. Yeah. Your friends and people that love you react to that very positively because they're pleased for you. Yeah. But everyone else looks in their mirror and goes, why comes my life's not as good as that? And then they start analysing themselves, which sometimes doesn't give them the answers they want. Yeah. And is there like a particular reason why you're a generally and genuinely happy person? Is it <laughs> something you be? work on? It or? couldn't be. It couldn't be. I mean, it's impossible. Mate, I've had a touch. I've had a touch. Yeah. I used to sit on my dad's lap when he was... We used to get conkers out the window when he was driving a tram. Yeah. You know, I mean, if my mother... When I bought my first big house in 1982, I made the money selling the snookles, my mum came to see it and she looked at me, and bless her, she said are you doing anything illegal, dear? <laughs> she could not believe that someone from our background had suddenly had this big mansion and, you know. And she was actually unnerved by it because it was alien to her. And, and it was really quite sweet. But at the same time, I don't have the right, whether you, I mean, I am slightly religious, I'm not going to oversell you on that, but I don't have the right to stand in front of God and say something in my life has gone wrong because I've been looked after yeah. and I'm going to enjoy every second of it because I do understand and in fact it was the only thing my father ever said to me that made sense because he was ill from late 20s until he died at 44. Mm. The only thing he ever said to me that made sense is don't waste a minute of your day because his life was built around thinking when's the next heart attack or whatever because medicine wasn't as advanced then and I have followed that absolutely to the letter. I don't waste a minute and I enjoy every minute. And if there's something I don't enjoy, I stop it straight away. Whether it's people, whether it's events, whatever. Because that's not, that's not in my life. Yeah. I don't tolerate I've had my days when I've had to kiss, kiss backsides. We've all had those days. And I've taken the money and I've smiled. <laughs> so I'd just like to, um, to add one thing to that. Uh, if I'm ever getting myself in a bit of a stress or a threat, just like to say to myself, first world problems. Listen, stress is just, I mean, I'm not getting into mental health issues because I'm not qualified to talk about it. Stress is obviously an individual thing. Certain people react different ways. And no one can say they haven't had stress at some time because whether it's family, you know, people die and terrible things happen to you. But all you've got to do is remember that while you're here, everything is fine. Amen. Amen. <laughs> so you, um, you're pretty good at turning things round, I'd say. Um, some of the smaller sports, yeah. like uh, tenpin bowling and fishing, late in Orient. Yeah, so, nearly, uh, nearly, nearly, nearly got there. 
Well, you still did good, didn't I you? I did good, but I could have. I nearly had it off, didn't I? I mean, that, that, I'm still having therapy for, for the, uh, the playoff loss. Yeah. Two nil up at half time. But you can't help that, can you? That's not I your can, control. I can, I can. I should have taken that fourth penalty. I mean, <laughs> yeah. oh, I had as much chance of getting it. No. Yeah. It's, we have dreams, don't we? We have dreams. I mean, when I go to bed at night, I just think about nice things. Mm. And, and there's lots of them to think about. And Orient was my club when I was 11. So that was a dream, was it? It's ter- well, it's a dream for a kid to own your local football club to start off with. And then you realise, what on earth have I done here? This is aggravation. This is, oh, fans, money, players, mm. agents. I mean, you end up wanting to kill everybody. And you're not allowed <laughs> to do that, unfortunately. There's plenty of times you'd like to strangle somebody. Uh, and yet, when I go up to the great snooker hall in the skies, if I had to name 10 of my most special moments, and I've done thousands and thousands of events, four of them would probably be about Lake Norrin, wow. which is a hell of a percentage. Do you want to because, share a couple of those? Well, you, you know, you, you, you share them, <laughs> Jesus. The equalising goal against Arsenal in the FA Cup. I mean, the FA Cup, in the fourth round, we're playing Arsenal at home. You can't get a seat. It's the first time I've seen Orient absolutely packed in. I've seen Wenger and the team of superstars. And all I'm thinking of is, Please don't humiliate us, <laughs> please. And he doesn't because he rests a few of his players. And there's the, there's the gap. There's the weakness, as everybody's got a weakness. Complacency is a killer. Yeah. It's worse than cancer. Mm. They got complacent. They're one nil up, there's a few minutes to go. He's got four of his top stars. He's resting on the bench. A, a centre forward that I told everyone to sign and no one agreed with me, so I'm going to take the credit, paid him twice what my top player was earning, and he didn't deliver most of the time. Suddenly, Jonathan Tahue suddenly sidestepped in between two dormant Arsenal defenders <laughs> and smashed the ball in the bottom corner behind the hapless Al Mooney. And there's two minutes to go. I have, I mean, it's an adrenaline rush you can't describe. I'm, we're shouting obscenities at the referee to blow the whistle. <laughs> what do you mean three minutes of injury time? Are you mad? Yeah. My wife is reminding myself and my son to please calm down and keep the language somewhere <laughs> acceptable for a family club. And when the final whistle went, the surge of adrenaline and joy just can't be described. Mm. And we got beat 5 nil at Arsenal. We made £1.4 million on their share of the gate. Happy days. Yeah. But sport is about occasions. You know, as you get older, if you talk to your dad or your uncles or your granddad or whatever, they'll tell you things in their life that stick in their mind. And it might be Henry Cooper against Muhammad Ali. You know, it could be, I don't know, some big tennis final that's stuck in their mind or, or the Ryder Cup or a horse race. But sport does that. And that's why it's so essential for the country to have a sporting interest because it's the only time we as a country totally unite behind sport, you know, if it's, a, if it's the Olympics, if it's the World Cup, you know, everybody is focused on it. And, that, and there's an awful amount of good that can be done because it does inspire people, but it comes at a price. It comes at a price of government having to spend enough money on facilities, not giving up on inner London areas, not just saying, oh, that's finished, it's just tower blocks. Stop building tower blocks for a start, it's a disaster. Mm. I mean, we spend most of my life trying to knock down tower blocks. <laughs> yeah. Nowadays, they're building them up again. I mean, mm. what's going on? Just not, it's not acceptable. But sport is classless. It, it transgresses any boundary. And, and it gives us memories that on our deathbed we'll remember, you know. 
And as I say, Orient, you know, or I'm boring with Matty Lockwood's fantastic goal against Hull in the semi-finals of playoffs, you know, things like that when you're, you're there. And then the downside of being 2-0 up at Wembley to go to the championship and pull off the biggest coup forever on a £1.4 million total salary budget, but with a team that would die for you. That's it. It's man management. It's what you create. And we nearly got away with it. Ah, the therapy's not quite working. <laughs> I know you also um, got the club on a more stable financial footing. Um, so, yeah, but mainly because I'm not an idiot. I mean, I'm not going to go into any venture and endanger my family and the wealth I've built up. But at the same time, I'm going to run a proper business. So I look to increase the monetization, the commercialization. I look to limit losses. And actually, even as good as I am, and I'm not going to tell you I'm the best in the world at what I do. But as Brian Clough said, I'm in a group of one. <laughs> <laughs> and if I can't make a profit, it can't be made. Yeah. That's the end of it. And I couldn't make a profit out of football because it's a bottomless pit. Yeah. And you can't take away the fact that you're competitive and you want to win. Mm. So, you know, it's one more centre forward, please, Chairman. Yeah. One more centre half. And, you know, it's, it's horrible. It's a horrible business with some beautiful moments. Mm. I'm so happy to be out of it. I'm the president, non-executive. I'm still underground, so I make sure that that's preserved forever in the East End. Mm. But, oh, I'm so happy than day to day. I, I still go there. I kept a table of 10 in the boardroom for the rest of my life as yeah. part of the deal. And my 91-year-old father-in-law goes there every Saturday that we're at home, and it's his, the best day of his week. Mm. And I think it's lovely. Yeah. Okay, so you were doing things like promoting 10-pin bowling, yeah. fishing, all of that stuff. How do you promote a smaller sport, well, these days, which everyone lot, doesn't love. It's a lot easier now because social media has defined the boundaries. You know, there's niches. Eddie's all over that, isn't yeah, he? Yeah, of course. Him. I mean, yeah. we're, social media is a strength of matchroom sports business. We have loads of very young, talented people that care about a sport and are prepared to invest a lot of hours in it and also look at it in a slightly different way, you know, behind the scenes, personalities, as well as the event itself. Yeah. And it works, and it works for our sponsors because the days of just lineal coverage, fine, they're just a number, but a targeted audience on social right. media is far more valuable to yeah. a sponsor because it actually reaches people. Yes. And there are niche sports out there that have been largely overlooked in, the year, in years gone by yeah. that are capable of being built into phenomenal mainstream sports, and darts is the best example of that, you know? I mean. It's the second highest rated sport on Sky behind wow. Premiership football. That is crazy. I mean, where did that come from? Yeah. I mean, okay. How did you get it there? In 2003, I bought a controlling interest in the PDC because I liked what I saw. And what I saw was blokes, largely blokes, drinking, smoking and gambling and watching pretty skillful guys. Yeah. And I thought, this will do me. It was a low cost of entry because the PDC in those days and you'll have to forgive me for being so pedantic on numbers, but their turnover in 2003 was 1.14 million, and they made a loss of 61,000 pounds. So that was the level we was operating. Prize money was about 500,000 pounds over the year, over spread across the whole year. But I just felt this was an ordinary game played by ordinary people with extraordinary ability, but it needs packaging, it needs showing, it needs to drive the atmosphere and that's what I do. I mean, there's not a book on it. It's 
gut feeling about. There should be a book on it. Yeah, well, if there is a book on it, I might not be the best in the world because everyone else will be copying and they're bound to be. It's like Eddie's coming to boxing, he's better than me. I hate it. I hate it. <laughs> but darts, to me, has given me more satisfaction than probably almost anything because these guys are where I came from and I understand the hunger. And, you know, and it's never going to be... Very few of them are going to earn a million pound plus a year. There's always going to be probably four players will earn more than a million. One player probably earn more than two and a half. But there's an awful lot of them earning 100, 200,000 a year. And where they come from, that is a, that's a lot of money. A lot of money. When Rob Cross won the World Championships last year, as he walked off the stage, it was like someone had hypnotised him. Because the penny dropped. And I said, are you okay, son? And he went, I'm fine. He said, but I can't believe it. I said, well, believe it. You just won the World Championship. He said, I know. He said, but last year I was an electrician. I earned 25,000 pounds. He said, and I'm now hearing I'm going to earn over a million pounds this year. I said, yeah, you will. And do you know what? You're sending out a message to everybody what can be achieved. Good luck to you. And he's, that was a phenomenal moment because kids, you know, kids sometimes they get bullied at school or maybe they're a bit fat or something. I don't know. They can't play football. Kids are cruel. So what do they do? Some of those kids are going in their bedroom, putting a dartboard up and smashing the granny out of the treble 20. And suddenly they're coming out, they're 16 years old and they go on a developmental tour. Suddenly they win a few quid. Oh, this is a good game. So they go, they go to Q school. They get their card, the golden ticket. And the next thing you know, they're the highest earner on their estate. And they're held in high esteem and they're respected and they're inspiring other kids. So that, that's, the, that's the sort of picture session of the whole of sport. You know, if, you know, traditional sports are really under pressure. Cricket, rugby, golf, those three are traditional sports. Lack of facilities in normal schools mean that they are becoming more and more a private school sport. It also means that you've got to spend a lot of hours learning those sports. And a lot of kids today won't spend that type of hour. They won't pay the price. I still play league cricket, I'm 70. I'm not the oldest in my team. And uh, by the way, I think there's two 25-year-olds or under. This is a sad decline, so we've got to work harder to give reasons for them to pay the price and invest in their future in sport. But it's not easy, and, and golf is the same. There are too many barriers to entry, and we can't afford barriers As to entry. Price, time it takes to play around, etc. Golf club membership, yeah. equipment costs, travel, facilities which is one of the reasons why darts has been embraced by so many people saying, do you know what? I can go down my pub, I can go down my club, I can stick a dartboard in my garage, I can put one in my bedroom, it's exactly the same. And I can learn that repetition because I know if I work hard enough, like Phil Taylor did, I can average over 100. If I average over 100, I can make a living. So there you go, there's your target. If you're not good, six months later you say, well, it's not working out, fair enough. You start seeing that little light at the end of the tunnel and you just pray it's not a train coming towards you. Mm. So I've, um, you've got another meeting in about 10 minutes, so I want to respect that time. So in a moment I'll do a few more quick fire ones to get right. us there. Yeah. Um, but I've got one selfish question, which on isn't then. on my script. So um, I'm very into golf. Yeah. Um, my son played in the world under six championships wow. when he was five, then six. He's wow. played in the Europeans, the British. He had five hole-in-ones by the age of six. He got his first hole-in-one at three. Already, I don't like him. Um, no, no, nor do I. I mean, um, how do I... I mean, I was three up in New York last Monday and I got beat on the 18th. I mean, I can't, I can't <laughs> listen to success from your son. <laughs> no. 
So, so how, what do you do with him? Yeah. So how, how old is he now? Ha, um, he's seven. Seven. Okay. Um, so how? Oh, what what needs to happen to golf okay. for it to? Oh, um, nothing's going to happen with golf. Golf is going to get smaller in terms of participation and bigger in terms of a TV sport and bigger in terms of sponsorship because it has a perception of value. That's history. You yeah. can't change that. Uh, some of the powers that be at the European Tour, when they come, they come and talk to me. I mean, last Ryder Cup, they used every one of my walk-on themes for darts. Yeah. You know, okay, yeah. they're trying. Yeah. But it's wrong. It's wrong. Yeah. Darts is different to golf. So, so what do you think golf needs? So golf needs nothing. Golfness needs excellence because the opportunity is there and it's tough. But the most important thing about youngsters playing any sport is that they're happy and they enjoy it. Yeah. You know, it doesn't, and dads and mums can be the worst enemy of that because they drive <laughs> yeah. the kid more than the kid wants to be driven. Yeah. If it's in you, it's in you and it will come out, yeah. but you have to make it fun. The opportunity is there within the structure of most sports to progress if you have ability. Unfortunately, in sport, it's a series of snakes and ladders. You know, early doors, there's an awful lot of ladders. Later on, you come across more and more snakes. And if you can negotiate your way past the snakes and just go up the ladders, you will be a star, my son. And if you don't, you will be normal. Because stars are not normal. Anyone who plays at high level is born to play at that level. Please God, it's your son. And it may be, and it may not be. But you know what? It, it won't come through your influence necessarily. I mean, you can make certain things easier for them, but it comes down to character within the sportsman or woman. And you won't know now. When I had, uh, I had lots of chips on my shoulder through my youth. And one of them is which I don't think I ever heard the whistle go in the 90, for the 90 minutes in any game of football where I was playing against a private school. So someone would say something like, jolly well done, and I would whack them, basically. <laughs> and this is not something I'm proud of, it was an issue that I had at the time. I sent my son to a private school and I spent a long time being very concerned about what type of person he's gonna be. Did he have the working class attributes that I was looking for, that I found in me? Or was he gonna be a sport rich kid? And you worry as a parent about your children more than anything else. When he was 16, he was a half, he was a decent heavyweight boxer as a kid. And despite my wife's protests, we went to the gym and we had a proper fight. Yeah. I was 48, I was still sparring. And I was never any good, but I could look after myself and I was a man. And he was up for it because 16, you have no fear. And this was a proper fight? I was a proper fight. So small gloves, gum shields, head guards, Two minute rounds because I was trying to get things my way. Each, you know, two minute rounds is long enough. And he charged out the first round trying to kill me and I hit him with an absolute peach of a shot that he went up my arm and that's it. And unfortunately he was still standing and I thought I could have a problem here. And he dropped me twice in the second round. We never had the third round and I left the gym far happier than him. And that's how you will judge your son the same way. If he's happy and he's enjoying it, all your role is to encourage, isn't it? and support mm. and actually pat him on the back when he does good things and don't chastise him, chastise him too much when he doesn't because mm. he's a kid yeah. and he's seven now your aim now is for him to be shooting level par when he's 13. Mm. so if he can shoot level par at 13 then i would expect him to be three or four under par by the time he's 16 and if he can hit that 
he's a potential superstar. Yeah, yeah he, but, got, he got his handicap last year. He plays off 29. Yeah. Um, 29 is phenomenal for that age. Yeah. So he, he has sick. a chance. He has a chance. But again, you don't want to put the pressure on him. No, that's you want him part. just to enjoy it. Mm. And when he does something great, you give him a hug like you give him, you know, like any dad would give a hug when his son scores the only goal in a 21-0 whitewash yeah. and he gets one and it's like, it's the yeah. greatest moment of his life. And, and that's, children are not difficult to work out, but they do need an accelerating amount of discipline as they get more mature because there are more distractions for them. You know, I mean, not that it ever affected you or me, but girls, alcohol, yeah. all these things are that natural my distractions. my own golf, to be honest. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm not so sure about girls. I know I wasn't good at that, but alcohol had it. No, in all honesty, it, it, it's just that encouragement that our role is to give encouragement. And then as they get older, if you see something, it's just the occasional kick up the backside to make sure they're not sitting upstairs on the Game Boy for five hours and doing nothing productive apart from addling their brain. So, you know, but in the end, God-given talent comes through, no matter what. Thank you very much. Um, do you think golf needs a bit of a shake-up? Like there's this Phil Mickelson, Tiger Woods, what is it, nine million, something like that game? For me, I think that's quite exciting. Yeah, it's all, um, right. It's all right. It's at Shadow Creek in Vegas, my favourite course in the world. Yeah. Tiger do you think plays golf needs that razzmatazz? Not, not really, no. 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 It's a one-off. It'll be treated as a one-off. If anyone in the world really believes they're playing for nine million winner-take-all, they must be go straight to the funny farm. <laughs> I would have thought it's three million each and we'll play for three because it's a bit of a laugh. And they've got yeah. hundreds of millions. What do they care about? And um, I'm sure they'll make out of yeah, all the... To a starving man, a sandwich is a feast. Mm. To a one-eyed man, he's <laughs> the king of the blind. And all those sort of things. Yeah. I mean, there's nothing wrong with doing it, but you can't take your eye off your core business. And your core business is the majors and the big events and that's what inspires other sponsors other broadcasters to be competitive and that's why golf is secure and whether there's less people playing it really doesn't matter because golf has got a certain niche following and it is very much a niche sport uh, you're talking on sky maybe 60 70 000, 100 000 maximum people probably less watch a european tour event well you know if i got those numbers for for darts i'd be out of business you know but I don't have the perception of quality yet, which I'm working on all Why the time. Why is there so much money in golf then? Because it has that, if you, well, if you analyse the chief executives and the chairmen of every PLC company, you'll find that 85% of them have got some sort of golf link. Because it's a good game for people that have got time and can play at nice clubs, it's a social game. Yeah. Uh, and that's the history of the game. I mean, you know, it's not been around five minutes like darts. I mean, where darts will be in 20 years' time will be working man's golf. Yeah. And that's a different image altogether. Mm. Okay. So, um, some bit of random and then a quick fire. So, uh, forgive me if um, I've got this slightly wrong. Go on. Um, but I believe you said that your, having your heart attack was one of the best days of your life. Yeah, it was certainly an educational day. I mean, I knew it was coming anyway. And it's, How did you know it was coming? Well, because my father died at 44, his father at 43, and his father at 44. So it was on the cards that something was going to happen. Yeah. And uh, I'd grown up with it. So in a way, you half expect it. it's hereditary to some extent. But today, there's lots more medicine, lots more operations. And it, it wasn't a bit, I mean, I know it sounds terribly flippant, it wasn't a big deal. So it you said was, it was educational. What did well, you it was. I mean, well, we're all vulnerable, aren't we? I mean, you can't start thinking 
I sometimes am accused quite rightly of thinking that I'm some godlike creature. As, no, my enemies accuse me of that. I always think prefer I prefer the description benevolent despot. <laughs> you know, I don't know why, it just sounds a bit posher. Yeah. But sometimes it's good to know that we're all human. Yeah. Um, it didn't do me any fun. My wife was was great. She said these mortal words. I said, I'm having a heart attack, get me an ambulance. And she said, let's give it 20 minutes and see how you go. <laughs> and I thought, That's, does she love me? Does she really love me? And then she turned around and she said, I can't dial 999. And I'm like, I can't breathe. I'm, I'm like, ah. and I'm like, why, why can't you dial 999? She said, that's only for emergencies. <laughs> <laughs> she woke my son up to make the phone call. She wouldn't do it. No. I'm still married to her. It's amazing, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. But no, it was, it was all right. And I think also, don't forget, I'm such a flash bastard. I like to be the centre of attention. There's different, <laughs> way ways, to get there's different ways of getting attention, yeah. isn't it? The nurses were great. I had a good time. Stayed at some nice hospitals. The baked sandwiches were great. <laughs> Custard creams with a cup of tea. I mean, you can't have much better than that, can you? Yeah. All right, thank you. So next one is, um, you've had a very long marriage. And you've also said you're relentless, you focus on your business mm. first. So how have you maintained a very long marriage and been so relentless in business? Well, I think you need, it's like a partnership with anybody. You need to have different uh, ideals. You, um, you need to be different people rather than the same people. You need to have separate interests. And if the bond is strong, it will remain. And it may remain out of habit. It may remain out of deep, enduring love or whatever, but basically you get on all right. So you just carry on. I mean... Is she involved in any of your No, certainly not. No, no, no. no. <laughs> Sounds my like that's is, a good thing. My wife breeds thoroughbred racehorses, so last night she was suicidal coming out of the sales at Newmarket because one didn't sell and I don't understand why she was so upset about it. We'll probably win the derby with it, is the way I look at it, you know. So, no, she's an entirely different person. She's. I mean, I'm rough as hell. I'm working class 100% and I'm never going to change. She's quite a posh bird. Yeah. And she's but got... you did all right? No, oh, I did all right. I did all right. <laughs> she was only 16, I was 18 when we met on the bank station. We've been together ever since, so I don't know how she tolerates me, but she puts up with me and she's the only person in the world I'm frightened of. Yeah. Because I think a woman like that, they're scary. <laughs> they, got, they seem to have lasers in their eyes. They, you can feel them in the back of your head thinking, I must be doing something wrong. <laughs> Because I can feel she's looking at me. And inevitably they are. I'm going to save you and go to the next question before no, you. No, 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 you're good. <laughs> no, it's, 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 like, it's crazy. Yeah. It's crazy, but it's life and mm. it works. What's your view on retirement? It doesn't exist. No. Why would I retire? I mean, I'll retire the day I don't enjoy my job. Yeah. And I can't see that happening, but God willing, you never know with health and fitness. I mean, I try and keep myself in shape. Um, Inevitably, you're getting older. Inevitably, the workouts are less strenuous than they used to be, which is okay. But the idea of retirement, unless I had an alternative, if I could see another way of having fun, yeah. But at the moment, I can't. I'm just adrenaline-packed every day. I mean, my heart rate goes up every day when I get to the office, because I'm excited. And, and while that stays the same, I'm carrying on, much to the chagrin of my, I won't even call them opposition, because I don't consider them to be opposition. In my inferiors, yeah. not my superiors. <laughs> 
just on that, it's not uh, not um, in my questions, but you know, what's your view on having challengers, critics, haters, people resisting you? You seem pretty it. laid back about. It. You just I love it. I love it. I Why do you love, love it? it? I love it because I want all the abuse I can take. Because I, if I can't put up with that, God's been kind to me. I mean, that's a small price to pay, mm. and you know, it's frustrating sometimes when it's misinformed, and I try to correct it. And where social media is so good, because at least you can bounce back and slaughter someone, and then just go blocked. Done, you know, it's lovely. And you feel cleaner. And I think, I think the greatest thing about doing okay in life is the ability to be able to tell the truth. I don't think I've always been guilty of that. I think I've, you know, they've always been, when you're a salesman, like I am, there are times when you stretch certain things a little bit, perhaps too much. But as I've got older, I only ever tell the truth. And it's refreshing that I don't really care how I tell it or who I tell it to. Mm. Okay, so it's my next meet. Yeah, sure. Little Chinese lady who runs most of Chinese China media. Strange woman. <laughs> uh, we'll, we'll cut that bit. <laughs> um, yeah. So, it, it, as I say, you're there to be shot down as well. You've got to understand that. You know, you're up there. You're the guy that sold you can't the ticket. Good and none no, of the bad. You, you can't. No, 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 no. It goes with the turf. And by the way, if you haven't got skin like a rhinoceros, get out and do mm. something else. Mm. Okay. Best advice you ever received? Well, I think my father's saying, "Don't waste a moment of any day." Yeah. Is probably the best advice I've ever had. But uh, I'm sure other people have told me. It's not so much better advice. I, I read things like. I read a lot about Warren Buffett and his mm. ideology and things yeah. like that, Gates to an extent. But Warren Buffett's my, probably one of my favourites. Yeah. Because there's a bloke who I can actually identify with. I mean, not with his money, because I'm never going to be worth the money Warren Buffett's mm. got. But the fact that he still lives in the same house for 40 years. Loves what he does. Loves what he does. Him and his mate sit yeah. there. And it's a game, you see. Business is exactly the same as sport. It's just another game. Mm. Don't get carried away with it. Yeah. You know, so and you want to win. Yeah. And the winning is what gets you up in the morning and drives you on. Mm. And Warren Buffett, who's got riches beyond wealth, he still loves it when he finds a little company somewhere with good management, invests <laughs> in it, builds it up, makes it bigger. And it's like, Warren, you know, that was quite a lot of work for you. Why did you do that? Because it was there. Mm. And, and I saw the opportunity and I didn't want to let it pass. And I'm relentless. And you think, top bloke. Mm. Because it's terribly easy to get complacent. And then what do you do with your life? You know, once you don't have a, an end result or something, you know, every year, I mean, I'm just dreadful with numbers. I mean, I live on numbers. Every, I mean, I change my ratings on my darts, 128 players by hand. This weekend, I can't wait because it's Pro <laughs> Tour 23 and 24, and it's the last event for the cutoff of the World Championships. It's like, I've got all my figures there. I shall change it by hand, you know, and I shall. But that's, that's my whole life. And... I think the, the most advice is just make, make sure you're busy. Make sure you're enjoying yourself. Make sure you're smiling. Make sure, hopefully, you're contributing. But mainly, mainly be selfish. Yeah. Be very selfish. Because it's a trite phrase to say this is no rehearsal. Just make sure when you've finished, you've give it 100%. Yeah. Win, lose, or draw. And also, if you fill yourself up, then you can fill other people up, but you can't fill other people yeah, up when you're sure. empty. No, no, no. I mean, you know, again, if you go back to Warren Buffett, I don't think he was the most generous person during his life. He was building up a massive portfolio. And then his first wife died, and he reappraised. And he phoned Bill Gates and said, you've got a charity. I'd like to give you some money. And Gates said, oh, I think he was quite shocked. It's 
very kind of you, Warren. What would you want to give me? He said, I'm going to give you 30 billion to start with. <laughs> He's like, what? And the reason is because he said, look, the game's been played. The money's been made, it's there. Um, yes, we can make more, and, and I want to because that's the game. It's not, sometimes people don't understand that the end result is whether you've won or lost. It's not about how many millions have you got or what you've got. That's just, that's the trappings around the game we're playing. And, and, and I have plenty of events where if I make a penny profit, I'm over the moon because it's, yeah, it's broke, you know. And others, you're disappointed if it only makes X million, you know. So it's all relative, but in the, the overall side of it is just, just tell your tr you know, telling the truth is important. The most important person to tell the truth to is yourself. And funnily enough, I, when I do some chats around the world and something, I always recommend, you know, 10 minutes a day in the bathroom, in a mirror, and talk. Yeah. Talk to yourself. And you know, you try it. It's very tough to <laughs> That's do. Scary. It's scary because you get a bit self conscious. You think, am I going What nuts? do you say to yourself in the mirror then? Usually I start off by saying, you prat. What do you do that for? <laughs> How many times have I told you not to do that? And actually, it's really cleansing. It's just 10 minutes. And, and honestly, the first few times you do it, you'll feel an idiot. But after a while, you'll quite look forward to it because it's the only person that's ever going to be 100% truthful to you, mm. is yourself. Yeah, and they're with you the whole time. What a podcast this is. <laughs> this is dynamic. This is going to change the whole world. <laughs> Talk okay. to yourself for 10 minutes, yeah. morning, evening, and night. Don't make any difference. And have a proper chat. And talk to yourself as if that's someone else that's looking back at you. Mm. You'll, be, you'll be surprised what come out. Well, I commit to trying that. Thanks, mate. So, a couple more quick ones then. Um, what's the worst advice you ever received? Do you know, it's difficult to say that because I'm not greatest at listening to other people. And that's probably a weakness. I mean, I never used to listen to anyone at all. And about 15 years ago, I decided to get everybody, senior people in my office, and, and they used to listen to me spout off. And I just went, today's a different day. Tell me what you think of our business and what you think we should be doing. And I sat back and didn't say a word. It was the best meeting I ever had. And I couldn't believe what was coming out. And I'm like, I mean, that was a 20 minute conversation in the mirror the next morning. Yeah. He's like, you prat. Why haven't you listened to these people before? They're brilliant. You know, what do you think? You know everything? Well, I think I know everything. No, you don't, you Wally. You know, and those sort of conversations go. So, yeah, I mean, the worst advice, I don't know, the worst advice, retire at 65 or something, you know, I mean, my grandfather spent his entire working career, every Sunday I saw him without fail, and he, he used to drive a, a lorry for Texaco, and all he talked about in the last three years of his life is, it's three years to go before I retire, it's two years before I go retire, and when he retired, there was nothing, mm. two years later you're dead, yeah. waste of time. It's quite common, that story. Waste mm. of time. And, you know, I'm convinced people like Warren Buffett are still kicking it in his mid-80s because he's got something to live for and something that he enjoys and something that makes it, him feel it, valuable. I think he'd tell you exactly the same. Yeah. And by the way, you know, he's changed people's lives as well because yeah. he's created an empire. I mean, I'm not saying I agree with everything he does or whatever, but the principle of mid-80s, still working, still getting up early, going to bed late, 
but enjoying it, and which he clearly does, can only be beneficial, not just to himself, but as we've seen to mankind generally with the odd 30 billionaire. And I mean, the list of things that that, that, that foundation's doing globally is just phenomenal. And that's what I'm saying about eventually taking the bigger picture and saying the, the financial side or whatever is something that you don't actually need. Yeah. My favorite day is to go fishing. I take a loaf of bread. Yeah. I might buy a maggot or two. It's not exactly going to test the treasury, is it? No, no. Okay, finally then. Um, this podcast is called The Disruptive Entrepreneur. Um, what does that word, disruptive, mean to you? Well, I love it. I love it. When, you, when you're in business, compare it to playing championship chess on a multi-table setup. Right? So you're playing Spassky or Fisher or someone like that. One game of chess, you're attacking. Another game, you're defending. The third game, you're messing about, just trying to confuse the enemy. Fourth game, you might get a bit tetchy and throw all the bits on the floor. Disruptive is, sounds negative, but it's not. It can be very positive. Disruptive people go into existing situations and change them. They are only called disruptive by the people that have operated inefficiently for years, or the people that don't have the dreams and the enterprise that you have, or indeed the work ethic. So disruptive to me generally is a compliment mm. because it's disruptive for a reason, and the reason is we've got to get better. Yeah. End of podcast. End of Thought podcast. of the day. Perfect way to end. And if you're listening to this driving your car, I hope you haven't crashed with the realisation that you've got it all wrong <laughs> and there's a whole world out there for you to change. Good luck. Is there anywhere um, you want to send listeners you know, to follow you or Eddie or anything that you're doing or promoting? No, they go wherever they like. They yeah. can find me if they need me. And yeah. if they don't, they're lost. Fair enough. Barry, thank you very much. Always a pleasure, mate. Thank you. Thank you. Cheers. That was fun. <laughs> Great. Could you do some quick photos and then we can leave Barry for his next meeting? Lovely. Thanks a lot for doing that. I hope you enjoyed it. I did. I yeah. Did. Well, it was, uh, it was always good to chat rubbish for a Of course, yeah. <laughs> There you go, trying to get rid of that. Yeah. Um, oh, there was okay. okay. Beth's just going to do a couple of photos and mate, then we'll be out here. Yeah. You want to do a photo as well? <laughs> you can take a photo, mate, no Thank problem. You. Okay. This will be front page of the China National tomorrow. <laughs> yes, okay. World Peace. I put the heading World Peace. <laughs> yes. Anyway, good to mm. chat, mate. Yeah, you too. Enjoy. Thanks a lot. Let me, Appreciate let that. I know when it's up and running because we'll I'll put it on in my car as well. Okay. Oh, I can't believe I said that. Yeah, well, if you talk to yourself in the mirror, then surely you can listen to your own podcast. This is exactly the same. Yeah. You ever listen to that Men in Blazers podcast? No. Is that a good one? Yeah. All right. I'll, so if, yeah. you, if you've got two hours spare, it's yeah. a hilarious story because a few years ago, I mean, I'm back and forward there, and, and there's a guy over there I know who I quite like. He bought. Who wants to be a millionaire for America? Mate, oh, right. Yeah. English guy called mm. Michael Davis. He found me up and said, There's a little podcast on soccer, which you know, I'd laid at the time. Would you, know, would you do something? I went, Oh, man, all right. And a couple of youngsters came down and I just gave them quite an entertaining interview, but it was full of bad language and they'll never get on. Yeah. And about a month later, they found me back and said, Oh, that went down really well. Can we have an evening with you when, when you next come to New York? And I went, Yeah, okay. You know. Anyway, I found out afterwards it's like it's the number one soccer podcast in America. Right. It's on NBC and ESPN, and it's like shit. Mm. 
it's got massive man yeah. anyway I phoned him up the week before I was going I told him when I was there and I said uh, where should we meet and I said we'll meet at the theatre and I went we're not going to the theatre are we I thought we were having an evening together and they went no no it's an evening with you I said we sold that in ten minutes <laughs> oh fuck it's like, it's like, it was a two hour live in the theatre in New York. Mm. It was unbelievably funny. And it's actually on, if you go over there, you can listen to it. The language is terrible. It is appalling if my wife ever listens. But it, it was great fun. And it's called Men in Blazers. Men in Blazers. I'll check that. I'm always up for podcasts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, sometimes you get different dumbness, you know. Yeah. Great. Yeah, I'll leave you to it. Thank yeah. you. All right. Thanks a lot. <laughs>